Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures, and we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Welcome, everybody, to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. And today I have uh, Jorg Rieger, who is professor at Vanderbilt Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, he's in the chair of religion and justice there. And um, one of our previous friends that I interviewed, Mike Morell, uh, connected us. And I got a copy of Jorg's newest book called Theology in Capitalocene. Did I help me out with that? That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's that's how I would pronounce it. Yeah. Theology okay. in the capital of scene, uh, a word that probably not a lot of people have heard. Right. I had to look it up. And yeah. uh, and then uh, it's really dealing with ecology, identity, class and solidarity. Uh, the uh, maybe the intersections of economics, religion and politics all the things you're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> exactly. Certainly not in polite company, but it's fun, you know, so exactly. <laughs> like the only things that are fun to talk about anyway. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So Jorg is uh, from Southern Germany. Um, he's distinguished professor of theology, uh, the Cal Turner chancellor's chair of Wesleyan studies and director of the Windland Cook Program in Religion and Justice at Vanderbilt, uh, an author of several books and published. And I found out he's a mountain biker. So all of my That's right. knows I'm, I'm a huge mountain biker. There's times when I'll just do a podcast and we'll just talk mountain biking. That would be fun. Yeah. Talk I about different bikes and places. Yeah. I interviewed a guy named Aaron Simmons, who just came out with a book called Camping with Kierkegaard. He's a philosopher and he's a mountain biker too. He's a downhiller. He puts on the full thing and then gets the big heavy bikes and bombs down, you know, but uh, I'm a cross country yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm more like you Yeah, cross country. And uh, I mean, climbing is, is also fun sometimes. Yeah. Especially at altitude, you know, like, I, like I'll go out to Colorado and ride in those high mountains. Oh, that'll get you. It's <laughs> a workout. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, let's start with just a little bit of your background. Where did, where, where were you born? I already said South Germany, but in your kind of give your family origin, your spiritual journey, give us a little brief uh, introduction to yourself. 
So I was raised in Germany, uh, but the odd thing about it is uh, I, I grew up as a Methodist uh, and there are very few Methodists in Germany. People probably know there's lots of Lutherans and Catholics. Uh, there are about 30,000 Methodists in all of Germany and um, therefore not only small, but people think you're weird. If you're Methodist, you know, people don't know what to do with you. And so growing up this way, uh, also spend a lot of time in church. Uh, you know, uh, you had to answer a lot of questions, you know, what is it that you believe and why are you so different, you know? And so I grew up with this strong religious identity. Of course, my family went back like five generations to the early Methodists in Germany, you know, all, all that stuff uh, that, that also made made uh, a difference. Uh, and, and this was sort of, you know, for American listeners, very close to what we think of as evangelical traditions. So we did a lot of things that evangelicals in the U.S. do, you know read the Bible, took the Bible very seriously, probably spent uh, four or five out of seven nights in church, you know, th wow. those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, out of that came the idea, uh, and not just the idea, but the conviction, you know, was a calling that I had to go to seminary to be a pastor. So I went to a small Methodist seminary, also in the south of Germany, where I grew up and studied uh, I mean, I was really excited uh, studying theology, um, became a lot more liberal during those years, uh, but somehow realized that wasn't enough either. So sort of the liberal stuff, thought, maybe there's something more, you know, and so I, I thought I needed to go on to do a PhD, which I did at Duke, um, Duke University. And uh, the reason for that was uh, I, I couldn't have done a PhD in a German context, um, in a German Methodist context. So I said, well, I'm ultimately a Methodist first and a German second. So I came to the U.S., uh, got this great job uh, at uh, SMU Perkins School of Theology right out of grad school, uh, which kept me at SMU Perkins School of Theology for 22 years, uh, wow. but finally came to Vanderbilt uh, to to um, teach theology here. Uh, maybe I should also say uh, I was not raised uh, in any academic family or in a place where, you know, my parents uh, had any uh, much of a sense of what this could even be, you know, to be not only sort of higher educated, but to become a professor. My parents were postal workers, so I'm first generation college. Uh, and I always tried to keep that uh, as part of my own repertoire, as part of my own identity also, you know. There's a lot of people that move up and out, uh, and I never thought that was a very good way of being a human being. So I combine a lot of different sort of religious influences, uh, you know, social background influences, um, family histories. My grandfather's, uh, my mom's dad was soldier in World War One. My dad's dad was a soldier in World War Two. So, so those are also some some memories uh, that um, you know that are with me as I do my work. Hmm. What what years were you at, at Perkins? Uh, I started in '94 and uh, moved to Vanderbilt in 2016. So, okay, that's one of the years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow! Cool. Well, I was down in Texas. I went to Baylor and Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So I was eight years in Texas, but been in Kansas but, City most of my life. So yeah, yeah. No, Texas is a, is an interesting place. I think people underestimate Texas. I I really uh, enjoyed my time in Texas, and I think we did some good. I mean, a lot of uh, the work uh, that I'm doing. Um, 
you know, that was the wonderful thing about sort of uh, Perkins School of Theology, that uh, you had a diverse faculty, mm. and I certainly was on the progressive side of that diverse faculty, uh, but they never kicked me out, you know, they, they never, uh, <laughs> never sent me out into the desert, as it were. Yeah, yeah. All right. And is your family still in, like, your parents or siblings still in Germany? And uh, uh, Yeah, my, my side of the family. I mean, my parents uh, both passed away now. My, my brother's there and some uncles and, and so on. Um, so we have some, some German family. Um, I, I also keep my connections to Germany because sort of in the religious academic context, uh, there's a bit of a lack of, of really progressive work. And so uh, I connect to the people that do that. Uh, and we have sort of these mutual collaborations, um, US, Europe, but also uh, other parts of the world. So for me, uh, that is that is part of who I am, but uh, definitely have still deep and ongoing connections to Germany. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, let's jump into your new book, uh, Theology in Capitalocene. So first of all, just tell us what that what Capitalocene is and what is that contrasted with? Right. So capitalocene is sort of a made up term, you know, um, people probably know about these geological ages, you know, the Pleistocene, the Holocene and so on. Holocene is the last 11,000 years since the last ice age, right? This is when modern humanity emerges, civilizations emerge and so on. Um, and uh, so this is the big geological timetable. And then a lot of people these days talk about the Anthropocene. Uh, which I think is 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 a is a good argument, and what they're saying basically is the last eleven thousand years. You know, this was the time after the ice age. Now, geological time has shifted to humanity. In other words, the Anthropocene is the time when uh, you know a growing number of human beings are reshaping the planet fundamentally all the way to the core that's the anthropocene you know you have now what is it eight billion human beings uh and they're leaving their mark on the planet uh, that's that's sort of one of the basic arguments a lot of people who talk about ecology talk about the anthropocene and then some of us are actually arguing maybe it is not the anthropocene uh, we're saying um the term was coined by the way by jason moore a sociologist um jason was one of the early ones uh and, and I think he's right to argue that maybe it is not 8 billion human beings who are changing the face of the earth, uh, but it is capitalism. Of course, capitalism means uh, it's an economic system uh, that's very much driven by human interests, but not by everybody's interests. So it's basically the interest, you know, the times of the Occupy Wall Street movement, we saw, we talked about the top 1%. So capitalocene is saying uh, that this geological age in which we find ourselves is different from what we had before, uh, but it's different because it is driven by certain interests uh, that are reshaping everything. So it's not just talking about the economy, you know, capitalism, people think about money, economy. It's certainly shaping politics, as we can see these days. Big money in politics does all kinds of weird things. Uh, but it's, it's, it's much more than that. You know, it's, it's also shaping, reshaping the environment. You know, the reason why we have, say, uh, something like global warming comes out of, you know, CO2 emissions that can be measured and uh, that are now uh, 
you know, the last 200 years, I think we had more uh, of these greenhouse gases than ever before in history. And so these kinds of things all add up. Uh, and, and finally, uh, this is perhaps the most important point for last. Um, I'm a theologian, so I'm interested in, you know, what shapes our ideas of God? How do we talk about God? How do we talk about things that are most valuable to us? And I'm saying this capitalist stuff also shapes the way we're thinking about God. It also shapes our mostly deeply held beliefs. Uh, and while people may not be aware of it, you know, they might still talk the same way they talked 30, 40 years ago. Uh, these things are more and more pulled into into this bigger force field where all of a sudden, you know, our images of God uh, look suspiciously like uh, an image of a big, all-powerful CEO. You know, this is what the capital scene does to us. Or, uh, you know, the way we think about Christ, you know, has a lot to do with how we think about, you know, um, profit functioning in the economy and so on. Uh, so, so it's those kinds of things that interest me. And so theology in the capital scene is talking about um, something that's shaping us all the way to the core. And of course, I'm interested not just in figuring out what's shaping us. But I want to know how do we change this? How do we resist this? How do we make sure we still have some alternatives? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so chapter one, you dive into... Um, well, just the planet is in crisis, right? Uh, so, I, by the way, um, I went last year for the first time to Mountain Film in Telluride. It's over a Memorial Weekend, and went with a with a bunch of people who most of them came from strong evangelical backgrounds and are more progressive now. And Mountain Film is started out as an adventure sports thing, you know, like so Jimmy Chin, one of the famous rock climbers and everything, and photographers with National Geographic. He, he, he opens, you know, he does all his documentaries, releases them there. He was there. I met, I actually met Jimmy and, uh, but then Bill McKibben was there this past May and talked, you know, I went to all of his lectures on the planet, um, watched a couple of new documentaries that came out, one called the grab, which was incredible about, uh, the use of what, how huge corporations are buying up land all over the world so they can get the water rights for the agriculture and all that, you know, it, and it's so, so it not only deals with adventure sports, but then it deals with um, environmentalism and stuff like that as well. And, Oh, it's great. We're going to take a, we're going to rent four houses. You you should come and hang out. It's a fun crowd and you would love that sounds, crowd that works. That sounds like fun to me. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Plus we can go mountain biking. I, I went, I, oh, <laughs> I know all the trails around there. So anyway, yeah, match made in heaven. That sounds good. Let <laughs> but let's know. talk about chapter one. What's going on in our planet and why does, how does, let's do this with chapter one. Let's talk about the planet crisis. And then, so most evangelicals grow up and think evangelicalism and God and capitalism all go together. <laughs> A lot of them. Yeah, no, I, I remember that from my own youth. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, yes. so why, why in the world is capitalism a problem and how does it tie into the planet crisis? And uh, of course we have, you know, global warming deniers, but I am not one of those. I am fully convinced that, you know, Bill McKibben predicted that we could have a billion environmental refugees in the next 25 years or something like that. It's just crazy the way, the planet is uh, heating up right now you know 
Yeah, exactly. And I mean, uh, maybe a quick word about this climate uh, denial. You know, uh, the book was published in 22 and the number I probably picked up in 21 uh, was 97% of the world's scientists agree that we have climate change and it's human made. Uh, in the meantime, I think uh, somebody said it's sort of like 99%. So more and more scientists agree uh, there is human made climate change. So, so climate denier is a very strange phenomenon. By the way, uh, those who still deny the climate, uh, talk to your insurance agents. Uh, the insurance uh, companies now are making provisions for increased number of flooding, uh, heat waves, uh, all that stuff. So, so uh, this is not the liberals. This is not the left. This is insurance companies. The, hard-nosed business people who are basically saying something is changing uh, and we have to respond to it so so that's that's something that i think we finally have to take uh more seriously so so that's happening um the next question is why, why is this happening right uh, it looks it really looks like it's human made um now when I did the research for this, uh, what really surprised me was that I realized, uh, you know, 71%, uh, uh, this is not me figuring it out, but the reports, you know, uh, and scientists uh, do crunching numbers, 71% of the world's CO2 emissions. And CO2 emissions is basically uh, from fossil fuel. Uh, burning fossil fuel is what creates this global warming crisis for the most part 71 percent of the co2 emissions are produced by 100 large corporations so people who are worried about co2 emissions might have to worry about who is actually producing that at the same time you know uh, some of the more environmentally minded people uh, might be aware of some of the tools that we now have like um what is it called carbon footprint calculators you may have heard about this, uh, you know, carbon. <laughs> yeah. This you mentioned how um, British Petroleum, BP, invented that to divert the attention away from them and to make, to, to put the attention on my carbon footprint, which amounts to a fraction, like a small, small fraction of the contribution to this. And but exactly. BP puts yes. out, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so it's almost like a distraction to move the attention away from the true person or the true companies who are. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is this is what we're finding. You know, this is there's so much that's happening in the world of big business uh, that we're not aware of. And then you have all these cover up campaigns. I mean, imagine when I first figured out, I mean, using carbon footprint calculators is a good thing. So I'm not not trying to make yeah, fun yeah. of it. And, you know, it's something that helps people live more responsibly, but that these things are intentionally put out there so as to distract from the bigger problems uh, that to me uh, is is one of the signs uh, that uh, we really have to pay attention so so that's sort of part of uh, what are the causes so so then what are the solutions right um, by the way how much yes so you got the carbon emission stuff but how much of um, how much is contributed from the deforestation and then also the methane that produce so like I, I watched a movie at the mountain film um called patrol and it was about a one of the countries down in central america where corporations are going in and buying or sometimes not even buying just stealing rainforests cutting them down and then and then using that 
spot for cattle, huge cattle, right, to do meat all over the world. And then the methane, so you lose the rainforest and then you got cattle producing methane. What are, what's the breakdown of the top, say, three contributors to global warming? CO2. CO2 is definitely the top one. Uh, no. You know, uh, maybe methane is, is the next one. I mean, methane okay. is a serious problem also. Uh, and, okay. and like, I mean, uh, what you described there is, is this double whammy, right? People then cutting down uh, the rainforest, uh, which, of course, uh, reduces the planet's ability to, to handle CO2. And then, uh, you know, putting cattle there that that then uh, produce more methane. So, so those, uh, I mean, those are certainly things at the very top. I'm not sure I know the exact uh, top three, but but what's so interesting to what you just described, uh, this is not small farmers doing it. This is not, you know, some people going into the rain, rainforest and clearing it. This again is large corporations, corporate businesses that are doing this oftentimes against um the politicians so you know you, you have this happening in the amazon and some of the the countries you know might not be too crazy about this practice but it's the corporations that do it anyway profit so, driven it's profit driven yes uh, and of course the thing about profit here is uh it is not profit for everybody but it is profit for just a very small group of uh of the population uh and and that's the logic of capitalism i mean so whatever people uh, like or don't like about capitalism just be clear uh the rule of capitalist businesses is to produce profits for stockholders that is the rule uh like it or not this is how business have to be run and a ceo who would say well you know, i don't like this rule i do it differently well you will not be ceo for long because there's the rules of the game uh and so once you realize some of these very fundamental structures uh, that we're captive held captive to uh, then of course you, you move on to the solutions and say, well what if profit wasn't the only motive but how do we get there right so it's those kinds of questions this is why i come back to capitalism and capitalism again and again uh, because this is not just a few bad apples or some bad people or elon musk as a horrible person mm -hmm. uh, even though people disagree about him you know uh, the question is what does the system do? Uh, and it's basically destructive of both people in the planet. There's a connection here, exploitation of people, exploitation of planet. Uh, and as you move ahead in this way, this, this production of profit for the few then happens on the back of the many. Yeah. And I guess um, that critique of capitalism, like has capitalism done anything good for humanity or the planet? And and then uh, on the flip side, what, what, you know, point out the harm that it's doing. And I like, sometimes I even think about like, I, I I'm borrowing, uh, you know, like the evil empire. <laughs> and I always think like, what's the evil empire today in the corporate world and of, of corporations that are, you know, not only, you know, the richest in the world, but then also harming humanity and the planet the most. Like I, I've often thought, what are the, what are the main culprits of of uh, profit driven corporations that are literally destroying humanity and the planet. I, I think your term here, empire, is is really crucial. Um, I'm actually teaching a course uh, this semester on 
post-colonialism and colonialism and empire. Uh, one of my books 15 years ago was Christ and Empire. Um, the basic argument is, you know, that uh, empire well, back then I said empire was a conglomerate of powers that seek to control everything. Uh, so empire is basically something that, you know, controls the many in favor of the gain of the profit of the few. And once you look at this, uh, the interesting thing for theologians to say, uh, this is how Christianity, this is the context in which Christianity was born. So, you know, Jesus starts his ministry in the context of the Roman Empire, <laughs> one of these uh, conglomerates of power uh, that basically, you know, uh, builds wealth and power for those at the top, you know, and Jesus fights that. Uh, and then you go sort of through history and you see this, we're still there, you know. Uh, and then the problem becomes this. Uh, Christianity accommodates, assimilates to empire, you start having a, an, an empire Christianity and Christian history, that's becoming a huge problem, especially in the fourth century when Emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine uh, basically uh, selects Christianity as his most, most favorite religion. Uh, you get this empire Christianity. Uh, you know, the British Empire is upheld by some religious beliefs. Uh, the American Empire has a lot of religious undertones also. Uh, but then on the other hand, and this is the beauty of it, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. You have these alternative Christianities. Not only do they not agree with empire, they might fight it, they might resist it, but they also form alternative ways of life. And that can never be suppressed. That was the point of my Christ and Empire book to say, empire shaped Christianity for 2000 years, but he could never take it over completely. And now we have something that pushes beyond these evil empires, as you put it. Uh, that's the hope. And that's, that's the excitement of the work I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to say now, I don't think you can understand the gospel of Jesus. And I'm, I'm kind of saying this to my evangelical friends, right? I don't think you can understand the gospel of Jesus apart from empire and oppression. Would yep. you agree with that statement? Yeah, very much so. I think that's a, that's a really crucial point. So I grew and, up and in a tradition that understood the gospel of Jesus as a private way to get me out of hell and into heaven, right? Versus a context of empire and oppression. I, I didn't even think about that through yeah. most of my studies, honestly. Let me give you two examples for that. Yeah, no, this is such, this is such, I mean, I, I think this may well be one of these central insights of our times, you know, for theology, you know, this understanding that empire is trying uh, to shape us all the way to the core. So in, in Jesus, uh, Jesus's ministry, you have these temptation stories, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, where um, the third temptation is the one where the devil uh, leads Jesus up a high mountain, shows him all the empires of the earth and says, well, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you power over all these empires. Yeah. Uh, that's an imperial temptation, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, if Jesus would have told himself, well, you know, right now, I have power over all these empires as an emperor. If I worship the devil, well, maybe I'll wait a little and then God's going to give me this power of the emperor. Uh, you know, not much of a temptation there. I mean, some temptation, get it sooner rather than later. Uh, I think there's a fundamental temptation that Jesus realizes God doesn't work like that. 
God does not work like the devil as the emperor, the ruler over all the empires of the world for the benefit of the few on the back of the many. So yeah. Jesus's rejection of the devil and worshiping the devil and empire, I think is really sort of one of the key moments uh, in, in what you get there in Jesus's own ministry. And then you go on to the Apostle Paul. And once you think empire and you see what Paul has to say, all of a sudden you realize that Paul's also fighting back against empire. Mm. Uh, very interesting stuff. You know, in First, First Corinthians, you have these ideas, you know, that uh, God shows that which is low and despised in order to push back against that which is revered, you know, and mighty and powerful. Um, Paul's image of the body of Christ, First Corinthians 12, you know, you have this image of um, one member suffers, all suffer together with it. Um, that's not empire logic. That's turning empire logic on its head. Mm. Uh, empire says, well, you know, a few people have to suffer, so, <laughs> so everybody else is better off. Uh, but uh, so even in Paul, uh, you know, you go through backwards and forwards through the Bible, you find a lot of these imperial critical positions. Go back to Moses, you know, what, what was the struggle against uh, Egyptian exploitation all about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So chapter two, you dive into a, a theology of new materialism and economic democracy. Is that? Am I getting those two terms correct? Uh, you are, yes, yeah. Um, dive into, yeah, yeah. Explain those two. What is new materialism? What is, and what is the theology of economic democracy? Uh, let me start with economic democracy. That's sort of easier to understand for Americans. I mean, um, you know, growing up in Germany, uh, one thing we always admired about the United States, and now I'm a United States citizen myself, so I claim this for myself, is, uh, you know, we have some very substantial democratic traditions in the U.S. Of course, that started uh, small, you know, it was white males with property who could vote, uh, but we extended uh suffrage so that now every citizen can vote that's that's pretty good accomplishment uh politics uh but this is political democracy what we're usually not talking about is economic democracy and by that i mean you know uh, who says that uh, when you are at work there cannot be democracy right who says that democracies can only be a political thing who says democracy is only like dropping, you know, a ballot in a voting booth or, you know, on a screen in a voting machine? Uh, why could democracy not be further attend, uh, extended? Uh, why do you have to enter a dictatorship uh, when you go to work? You know, why, why could democracy not be a value there as well? So, so this is one of the questions um, that uh, I'm raising. And this is one thing we are raising in this Wendland Cook program in religion and justice that I, I, I found and then directing at Vanderbilt University, uh, this religion and justice program, basically saying um, the economy is not a free-for-all. It is a place where we might have to apply some of our values that we treasure. So if we're treasuring democracy as we should, why not extend it? So that's one question. Uh, and of course, that's also a question of, uh, you know, how might alternative economies function? And I think the economy of Jesus, if you want to take one example, uh, is an economy of peasants creating wealth together, you know, very democratic in a way, not top-down, not exploitative, 
uh, not hierarchical, not uh, an emperor now running your job, uh, but, you know, people actually collaborating. So we're very interested in these things. Uh, but tie that back to this materialism thing. And, and this this may be the other thing that, that people are usually a little surprised by. You know, we, we usually, when we talk about materialism, uh, we use it as a negative term. You're so materialistic. You're so worried about money. You shouldn't be. Uh, and then, of course, there's the critique of the gospel of prosperity, you know, where uh, some people <laughs> preach the gospel of prosperity with the effect that those who preach it uh, then fly around the world in private jets uh, and the masses are still not raised out of poverty. So the gospel of prosperity, in some ways, uh, I see it as a Ponzi scheme, you know, it's sort of working for some people, but not for most. Uh, but this is what people then uh, go ahead. Yeah, please. Well, I was just going to say. You know what? Uh, yeah, I've done a lot of work in Africa, um, particularly Ethiopia, but other a few a few other countries as well. But when I first started working there a few decades ago, I was really surprised at how that the the prosperity gospel has taken root. I would say more Africans are into the prosperity gospel because of the hope of riches than than even in America, almost. It, it really shocked me. Um, but anyway. Uh, no, that's that's my experience too, actually. I, I think that that is happening. And, uh, you know, if if this was actually then a real thing, you know, if you say, well, you believe in the gospel of prosperity and it's doing something for you, you could say, well, we should take it seriously. But I'm adamantly arguing that the gospel of prosperity uh, has never raised a whole community out of poverty. You know, it no. might, might do a trick for a person here and there. It might work for somebody who's usually a small minority. And so, so the thing about then prosperity gospel, you know, uh, and this is where liberalism sometimes is, is just a, a knee-jerk reaction to whatever else is on the other side. Uh, it's then, you know, liberals say, well, we shouldn't have a gospel of prosperity. We should now... What should we do? Become more spiritual, you know, less materialistic and blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's a dead end, I'm saying. Uh, you know, in fact, what I'm saying is um, Jesus is actually uh, preaching a gospel of human well-being and flourishing uh, and prosperity in some sort of sense. Mm. So Jesus is not opposed to people actually doing well for themselves, having decent jobs, you know, having some economic democracy, if you will. Um it's just a different kind of prosperity. You know, uh, the gospel of prosperity is capitalist prosperity, which is called winner takes all. Uh, Jesus's prosperity is uh, um, the benefits go to to the masses, the many rather than a few. And and that's, that's of course, the last shall be the first, the first shall be the last. Mm. That sort of stuff we all know, we just don't read it this way. So, so what this um, focus on material reality is doing, it is bringing uh, the gospel into the present in a way that uh, we, we oftentimes ignore it. Now, there, there's an interesting uh, move here uh, that I learned, um, you know, from reading Karl Barth of all people, Karl Barth, you know, sort of this uh, 20th century Swiss theologian, still one of the really, really big names in theology. Um, at one point in his in little book, Dogmatics and Outline, uh, Barth talks about transcendence and imminence. Um, and he basically says, God's transcendence can be found in the manger in Bethlehem. Mm. And, and this really, uh, 
blew my mind because when we think of transcendence, we think of something that's far away out there, up right. in the sky, you know, in the ethereal realm above the clouds. Uh, what Bart is saying, you know, uh, God's transcendence is actually in Jesus Christ. So, so this is not a matter of now negating transcendence, but it's relocating transcendence in in the world, you know. Uh, and mm-hmm. of course, new materialism is not a religious movement. It's sort of a way of reclaiming uh, sort of this relation of transcendence and imminence by some social scientists, philosophers, and so on. I think that's interesting. Uh, but for Christians, uh, that's interesting. What's exciting is uh, more interesting than that is the fact that you find this connection in Jesus. So God becomes imminent. Uh, that's the incarnation. That's Christmas that we just celebrated. But the real beauty is that this now gives us a whole new different uh, view of transcendence. And so transcendence now means spirituality, now means living differently in the world. Uh, in other words, uh, transcendence is not up there and beyond the sky, but transcendence uh, happens right here and now, you know. Heaven is a place on earth or something like that, as as the pop song goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those who are watching, um, you're, you're freezing up just a little bit, but your audio is perfect. And then it only happens a little bit. So uh, I'm aware of that, but we're, I think it's just probably a Wi-Fi connection. But, you know, what's interesting is um, I've, I've rethought the whole category of, you know, the whole, uh, the study of the Hebrew word for holiness is kadosh. And a lot of evangelicals have interpreted that as transcendence. You know, God is holy other. But um, I, I, there's, a, there's a theologian who reworked the word study on holiness and came to the conclusion that it, it means devoted more so than transcendent. So like devoted. And, and so I started thinking about God's transcendence is in his and how radically devoted he is to creation or how radically she or he or it is to creation. And which led me to, you know, rethink some of my classical ideas of deism. It's put me more into the pan in theist camp, you know, but, and I just mm-hmm. contributed a, a sermon to a book on open and relational theology in which I, I, I read Braiding Sweetgrass uh, recently, which is a, uh, it's a book that came out a few, a decade ago. Uh, and it's basically an indigenous woman who's a botanist scientist who's trying to integrate some of, of, of uh, pantheists ideas about how everything is living. You know, like everything has agency, even down to matter and cell, you know, and all those kind of things. And, um, and I, I was just trying to say, hey, if we, if we saw everything as living beings, all of creation, and then integrated that into um, sort of a broad in, incarnation theology, um, and, and the idea of a gift economy, she brings out this idea of a gift economy where we're always working in, in solidarity with all of creation. So giving and receiving, receiving and giving with all of creation. And, and, uh, I, I really, uh, I thought when you were talking about new materialism and giving voice to the planet, giving agency to the planet, I don't know that you were running down that path quite that far but uh, if our economies are benefiting everybody that's involved including the planet 
Uh, I don't that I think it just makes sense to me. We're either going to destroy our planet or we're going to develop new. <laughs> this is my this is my you know one hundred and one version of of, <laughs> of what you're trying to say. I think, but tell me if I'm right or wrong, if I'm on the right path or not. But developing economy, uh, yeah, you're definitely on the planet, definitely. you know. Yeah, uh, you're definitely on the right path. I think that's what it means to say that God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, that's the first book in the Bible, right? That's how it starts. Uh, God uh, creates everything, and therefore everything is valuable. Uh, everything uh, counts. And in terms of agency, too, I mean, that's part of what I'm saying in this chapter, too. Um, human agency matters, but so does other than human agency also. Uh in chapter three, actually, we'll get to that probably in a minute. Yeah. I'm saying uh, we would not we would not even be around without agency. I mean, of course, human labor, uh, reproductive labor, the work that our mothers do, giving us birth. Uh, but then the labor of the trees, you know, the grass, the bacteria, uh, you know, the plants, uh, you know, uh, vegetables and all those kinds of things. Uh, that's all, uh, you know, agency too. And uh, in a way, we're not paying attention to that enough. Uh, now, the, the God question, this is this panentheism that you raised. Also, I mean, everything I said up to this point uh, is always related to the God question in the sense of where is God in all of this? Mm. So how can we think about God being at work, um, not only in humanity, but way beyond humanity? And I think that too is biblical that you think about, you know, God as the creator uh, creating all these uh, things that keep us alive, that sustain life. And without which, of course, we would not be alive. That's the problem of climate change here. Uh, not so much that everything dies, but that a lot of things die and maybe humanity with it. So, so this is really a matter of life and death, ultimately uh, raising these issues. And so that the, the suggestions that you're making, I think, are really important because we're now thinking of ourselves as participants. Uh, we're thinking about God as participants. Oh, and here's a little theological footnote I wanted to make. Uh, you know, as a Wesleyan, that's the whole point of the holiness traditions. Holiness here doesn't mean, you know, I, I have to be narrowly concerned with my own uh, little purity, uh, but holiness is this participation of everything in God's holiness. Mm. Uh, and therefore, it's not just individual, it's communal, it's political, um, everything. That goes back to John Wesley, by the way. Yeah. I'm not making this up just now. Yeah, I mean, I think he defined it as love almost, right? I mean, inter, inter you know, interdependence love is kind of how he defined holiness, if I'm understanding Wesley. Yeah. Love in terms of uh, relationships. I mm. mean, these are initiated by God, but we're the ones, uh, because God initiates it, we're the ones who are unable to respond. That's sort of this uh, great way of thinking about relating to God, God relating to us, uh, and thereby transforming the world. Yeah. Yeah. So in chapter three and four, um, and I, I'll give a little context. Like I just recently went through last year, I went through a process of obtaining standing. So I was ordained Southern Baptist, became a vineyard pastor, which was so entrepreneurial. They, they just accepted my Southern Baptist ordination. And now I'm with this historic denomination, this Christian disciple of Christ. And I went through their standing process. And one of the things I had to do was go through 
like DEI training and BIPOC training, you know, uh, this is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then uh, BIPOC training would be black, indigenous, and people of color. And then also I'm going through a two-year training in mindful meditation with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. And it's a certification for uh, mindfulness meditation. And I had to go through a whole track with them on DEI and BIPOC stuff. And, you know, so, uh, so it's just really, and then I was reading your stuff on class power and the whole issue of solidarity, different types of solidarity, deep solidarity, the, the role of privilege, white privilege, power, privilege and power aren't the same thing. We need diversity, systemic transformation. You know, it's like all of these huge ideas in chapter three and four, um, where it's like, oh my gosh, you know, and you know, so I, I've just gone through recent training with two different groups from two different perspectives, one a historic Christian denomination and one a more of a Buddhist uh, background and, and been hearing these topics through those lenses. And then I just read your, your chapter three and four. And I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Pull all this together for me. How, why does this matter? What, and what are forms of solidarity that maybe don't, you know, there's different types of solidarity, right? Different types of allies. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Those are really great questions. I, I think this is where we can really move quickly now into the question of what are the alternatives? You know, there's a lot of people complaining about capitalism. There's a lot of people complaining about global warming and all of that. Uh, but the question is, how do we make a difference? You know, how do we switch this game around? And so um, remember what I said earlier, you know, the problem uh, with a lot of these things we're dealing with is that power is concentrated at the top. Agency is concentrated at the top. You know, we always think it's a top-down solution. And then, of course, God is concentrated at the top. People then think of God as, you know, an emperor, uh, you know, a CEO, all that stuff. So turning this around uh, for me in, in this book really is raising the question, how else could we think about the world and about God? So we already talked about the incarnation, you know, God's transcendence becomes visible in the manger. And then, of course, in the life, death, ministry, resurrection of Jesus Christ, very powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and that's always bottom up. I mean, very clearly, this is not a top down solution. I mean, Jesus eventually gets killed on one of the crosses in the Roman Empire that was reserved for political rebels. So there was a real um, agenda there to get rid of this sort of bottom up movement. Uh, the beauty of it is, uh, we cannot get rid of it. This is, this is uh, part of the history of empires. Empires rise up for a while, they always crash and burn. The Roman Empire is no more. British Empire is not doing so well. We'll see about the US. Um, but the point here, of course, is not uh, you know to enjoy uh, break apart, breaking apart empires, but to really look at the alternative. So if you think about this theologically, you now see Jesus, the Jesus movement, organizing people from below. Uh, Jesus's mother, Mary, says it very clearly, you know, God lifts up the lowly. Uh, and that's the story that most people know, right? Mary is the lowly maiden who gets lifted up by God, gets chosen by God. 
But Mary is also pretty clear, uh, lifting up the lowly. This is in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, if chapter one, if people want to read it. Um, lifting up the lowly also means pushing the powerful from their thrones. Filling the hungry with good things also means sending the rich away empty. And God's doing that, according to Mary. Uh, bit touchy here, really. But uh, on the other hand, I think this is where, where some of the solutions are. So what I'm arguing then in the second half of the book is... Um, what if we rethink God and the world and religion from this perspective, and what do we find? Um, the first thing I find, and this is something that, uh, you know, is not talked about uh, strangely enough in American uh, contexts. Uh, this is the question of what about working people? You know, we think, well, working people do menial labor, you know, if they don't make enough money, if they don't make uh, minimum wage, that's their problem. It's not our problem. Um, but one thing we learned in the pandemic was that working people are actually essential. We talked about essential workers. Mm -hmm. That That's that's already a huge turnaround. I mean, uh, you know, I sometimes would say to my colleagues, say, well, so now you have essential workers grocery store workers, right, uh, workers uh, out in the fields, uh, people that basically keep us alive every day. Uh, we could not do without them. Uh, and I say to my colleagues, uh, you know, professors and pastors say, how essential are we to this? Because mm -hmm. usually we think the other way, we're, we're, the, we're the essential ones. Right. Uh, you know, uh, if you think about a corporation, I mean, think about the Ford Motor Company, how essential is the CEO compared to the worker who actually puts the cars together, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, so in, in some ways we have it backwards is what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and we could actually rethink that. Uh, that has economic implications because it would really sort of reevaluate the value of what people are doing. Uh, but it also has spiritual and religious implications because we usually do not pay attention uh, to the people who do all the work. I mean, even in our churches, right? The, the people who put on the coffee pot on a Sunday morning and get the donuts and whatnot and who then clean the buildings and all of that, uh, they're usually not seen as the heroes. You know, it's people like you and me, you know, who stand up in the pulpits and, um, and of course, it's not really you and me either. Uh, it's the people that fund us, you know, that's usually in the end, uh, we think are the most important players in this. So, so it's this sort of whole uh, reversal that I'm talking about. And then, of course, uh, we talk about, uh, and, you know, I could go on here. I just want to make sure, um, you know, we're on the same page. We, we probably need to talk about racism and uh, gender and sexism and those kinds of things also, because that too plays a role in how we divide up the business. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, so I just, I just helped put on an MLK event in Kansas city um, celebrating, you know, past victories of civil rights, but then also talking about, Hey, we still got a lot more work to go. Um, I put together a, you know, a keynote speaker and a panel. I did this with a few other friends of mine um, and, uh, and then musicians and all that. And, you know, when I think about, you know, the, the systemic um, racism in America, like the, toward the indigenous peoples and toward, you know, African-American people, um, when we think about 
the gender issues. We, you know, you think about all the minority dynamics at play in America, right? And how, yeah, how, I mean, then you're thinking about this in, in sort of these global and, and yet local manifestations of how do we transform power and privilege into ways that benefit everybody. Right. And, uh, and you're thinking about this economically, you're thinking about this, but like, I just interviewed David Gushy a few weeks ago on his new book, um, uh, about, uh, saving democracy from its Christian enemies, <laughs> you know, defending democracy against <laughs> Christian enemies and how, you know, Christian nationalism is at play right now in American politics. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, it's such a spider web of issues that have been going on for so long. And I care and I, and I'm trying, we're trying to do partnerships right now in Kansas city to continue the civil rights work that still needs to be done. Right. That's why I pulled together the, the group that I pulled together and we've got a whole robust plan for the next year or two. I care about all of these things. Like how can we develop systems both politically and economically and religiously that, that, enhance everybody's liberties and not just, a, yep. you know, right. And God, it's exactly. No, those, this, these are the right question to yeah. ask. I mean, um, yeah, no, I mean, let's start with racism. I think this is, this is an important one. And of course we're both white males. So we yeah. need to realize this. I mean, I know, you know, um, I know. Um, so let's start by talking about privilege. Uh, there is white privilege uh, for anybody and everybody who's white. I mean, some people have more, some people have less, you know. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, I think most of the listeners uh, know what we're talking about, right? We, If we get stopped by the police on, on the road, uh, we don't really have to, we might get a ticket, but we, we won't get shot, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, it could add up to that. Uh, and, and, and this is really uh, something we have to come to terms with. We have to understand. Of course, that was part of Dr. King's struggle also uh, to figure out, you know, what to do with this privilege. Uh, but, but King also knew uh, there was a difference between this. I mean, there's sort of the racial equality struggle. Uh, and then King at some point says, you know, what good uh, will it do for say a black person to sit at a lunch counter an integrated lunch counter if they cannot purchase a hamburger and a cup of coffee uh, in other words um, there is uh, something that uh, usually gets covered up when we talk about privilege and this is the question of power now power uh, as i define it uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, economic power this is a class analysis oh my god right this is again something that americans don't like to talk about one of these uh, things that uh, are taboo in polite company but they're fun to talk about because uh, class here means uh, not so much how much money you have but how much power you have over other people so now look at white people in terms of privilege you can say all oh, white people have privilege but if you look at white people in terms of power uh, they don't have as much power as they think because it's suggested to us that our privilege translates into power mm. uh, which it doesn't I mean if you're you know like me I mean of course I have a lot of privilege you know I'm a university professor you know I have you know international privilege standing uh, you know uh, all that stuff um, but uh, that 
translates into surprisingly little power. You know, if I stand on a soapbox and I say, I want racism to end, uh, well, it will not end, right? Uh, if I think, well, I, I just have to speak truth to power, well, I realize I may have the truth, but I still don't have the power. And so so that's the thing uh, I'm trying to figure out. So, so take white supremacy now. Built on the notion of privilege, it is a way of fooling white people to think that because you're white, uh, you have not only privilege, but power. That's not true. Uh, but this is intentionally used by white people who are very powerful to make white people then follow along with them. I mean, this is, of course... Uh, the strategy of, of some of our top politicians now, right? Using racism in order to to, to bring white people alongside them, um, misleading them to think that they have some power. So if, uh, you know, President, former President Trump has some power as a white person, uh, well, okay, he sure does. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you as a white person have that power. Right. Also. So that's one of the things, you know, you can do the same thing when you talk about sexual uh, gender privilege. Uh, you may have some privilege as a white man, but you do not have the privilege of, of the top. Uh, you do not have the power of the top 1%. Once you make that distinction, you can do two things. First of all, you realize that maybe uh, you have more in common with your non-white person that's living next to your neighbor, fellow worker, uh, you know, person in your congregation than you have with the white leadership. That's that's a big insight. And that's that deep solidarity I'm talking about. It's sort of rethinking solidarity in terms of who has some common interests. Mm. Uh, in other words, the white Walmart worker might have might have more in common, more common interest with the black Walmart worker than with the white Walton family which owns Walmart. So right. so yeah, that's exactly. something for sure. A lot of people forget. So yeah. once you've analyzed it this way, then you can say, not woe is me, I have no power, but you cannot come back and say, maybe if we want to change things, we need to organize differently. We do not need this top-down power, but if we organize in solidarity with people that actually have a similar lack of power and that are similarly exploited, um, in various ways in this system, we cannot work together. And sometimes you see it best when you look at where people are the worst off. So if I look at, say, what's happening in a university system, not just to a cafeteria worker, but to an adjunct professor who is teaching two or three courses a year, making less money than a cafeteria worker from that, uh, and maybe also a minority person or a woman, uh, I can now learn something about who I am, where I am in the system, uh, and maybe join solidarity differently. Mm. So, so this privilege stuff, you know, white supremacy and so on, that's used to produce false solidarity. Mm. Uh, I call this, uh, maybe one more thing here, I call this now unite and conquer. I think I made this up, uh, nobody else I've seen talked about it. We know divide and conquer, you know, you divide white and black workers, uh, the boss conquers, but unite and conquer means you're uniting white people, take white supremacy as the example, you're uniting white people in order to conquer non-white people. Well, that's clear, but you're also uniting white people in order to conquer most white people if they right. don't have a power analysis, right? right? You're basically, people always ask, why do so many people vote against their own interests? Well, because they don't know what their interests are, right? They think their interests have to do with their white privilege, while in reality, their interests might have to do with their common lack of power. So mm -hmm. once you make these distinctions, 
he can now uh, ask the question, of course, where is God in all of this? Because God usually gets identified with the dominant power, but maybe God is part of the organizing power of solidarity, number one. Number two, you can now go back to all the, the Christian values, including conversion and repentance. You now can say, uh, I have to repent. What do I have to repent for? Well, as a white person, I may have to repent not for the tremendous power that I have, but for not seeing that I've been duped into following the powers that be that don't help other people, don't even help me, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that implies a conversion, and a conversion means, in terms of this material thing we're talking about, doesn't mean just change your mind, but turn around, walk in a different direction, live differently, those kinds of things. Yeah, so um, we're, we're, we're running out of time. Um, but uh, you, your last chapter or the conclusion of, of this flow, and I'd really, I want to recommend people get a hold of this book and think through it. But you, your conclusion deals with the issue of reparations. And, uh, you know, I've had these conversations with my friends here in Kansas City because um, I've been partnered with the African-American community, pastors, the black historic black church here in Kansas city for a, a long while. And, um, you know, we, we've had these conversations over, you know, and man, that's, that's one of the harder things to sell to white Americans is reparations for the African-American community. I mean, in terms of like, particularly like the white evangelical world, right? Like they're, it's like, Hey, we've had 60 years of the, the you know, so rights and a black president and da, 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 you know, so what's the problem? And, you know, I love, I've got black and I love, you know, all that, any, you know, so yeah. Where, where have reparations in the world historically worked and how could we, it hasn't worked anywhere because you brought out the example of Israel <laughs> and how, how that, how the reparations have kind of backfired in some ways there. Right. Is that true? Can you? Yeah, that's a story? that's a very touchy issue. Yeah, I right know, now. I know. <laughs> and we don't run time. Yeah. So no, but, I mean the, the the book was written, of course, before uh, the current uh, yeah. you know, um, struggles there in in Palestine. Uh, but my basic point was, I mean, uh, reparations have worked throughout history, uh, and and one one of my examples is Germany. I mean, Germany after World War Two, after the Holocaust was very clear that reparations were needed. And uh, there is some agreement, the majority of Germans agrees that uh, Germans have to pay reparations for the evil that was done. Now, you know, this is what always strikes me about evangelicals. Uh, they always proclaim they want to take the Bible seriously, but then they don't. I mean, if you want to take the Bible seriously here, um, simply uh, read the story of Zacchaeus. What happens, right? <laughs> People know the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus picks, chooses Zacchaeus, goes to Zacchaeus, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, salvation comes to Zacchaeus. Uh, what, what does Zacchaeus do? Uh, reparations, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a story of reparations. Yeah. If yeah. there ever was any story of reparations, uh, yeah. and you cannot say, oh, well, that was just his problem. I mean, that is a model for 
what happens uh, with conversion, repentance, and all of that. And I those like, are good evangelical yeah. values that right. I affirm as much as ever. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of liberals say, well, we don't want to have this conversion and sin and repentance talk. Uh, don't bother us with that. Evangelicals are right to keep that language, but now we have to think about what it means. I mean, it, it has to mean something real or else, you know, I mean, this is just huh. a game that we're playing. So you see in Germany, some consequences, uh, those are important. Uh, yeah. But then what I'm also and, saying is, uh, so, uh, well, go ahead, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking like, you know, like evangelicals have in, in, emphasize private repentance for your private little sins, right? But then the Bible, clearly speaks about communal repentance and communal sins, you know, and this is where you get into the strategic, uh, systemic, you know, racism and all these, and, and we have communal things to repent of, right? You're, you're, you want to hang on to that language and how that leads yes. us in reparations, right? Very uh, important. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for that. Now. And I'm, I make amends, you know, because you know what I mean? I work through the 12 steps and make amends to people, you know, and that's a, that's a little bit like reparations in some ways. Yeah. And I mean, this is what people would do in personal relationships, right? If, yeah. I mean, this is why we have a court system, you know, uh, somebody commits a crime, yeah. uh, there have to be some consequences and everybody would understand that, right? I mean, especially conservatives. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it's like you say, uh, I mean, it, it always is a bigger thing. So if there's crimes that are collectively committed, um, something has to be done about that. And of course, in the Bible, it's full of stories, you know, mm -hmm. the prophet Jonah is a great example, right? Where Nineveh, the whole city uh, then repents. And Jonah is almost disappointed about that, right? Oh, no. <laughs> it would have been so fun if if God had just destroyed them all. Uh, but no, there's, there's some real... Uh, repentance and, and reparations, I guess, too. So uh, the problem then, of course, uh, I mean, I, I think a case can very easily be made uh, just based on theology that repentance, conversion and all of that uh, is a communal thing, uh, has material consequences, material implications. Uh, the question, of course, then is uh, what exactly do you do? And uh, what the Germans did was uh, basically to pay money to the state of Israel. Uh, which is probably better than not paying money, uh, but uh, in doing that, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, paying money is sort of another top-down solution, by the way. Uh, you, you're, you're then basically <laughs> um, supporting a couple of powerful people over against the masses. So this is not all Jewish people or all people living in Israel. Uh, this is now another uh, dominant system, you know, that, that you're funding. And, and we see some of the consequences now, uh, which are not, I mean, this is what people don't understand. What the state of Israel is doing right now is not supported by all Jewish people, maybe right. not even by the majority. There's substantial disagreement. There's substantial um, pushback. So what I'm suggesting then in terms of reparations uh, in uh, compensation for African-American enslavement in the United States is to say we have to look at what's wrong. You know, simply throwing money at a problem is not enough. Right. And so if you think about, uh, you know, this economic framework that we've developed in the capitalist scene, what's the problem with slavery? Well, it is the ultimate exploitation system where you're not only exploiting somebody's labor, but their whole lives, their families, you know, their innermost being and um, reparations in that context, then um, 
is not handing people checks, but, uh, you know, repairing these distorted kinds of relationships. So if you then restore, say, a labor relationship, this is back to economic democracy, where people now have some power at work, uh, actually see some revenue uh, based on the effort that they're making. I mean, this is the American dream, working hard and actually making ends meet. but we don't really see that, you know, for most people that doesn't exist, you know, most, a lot of people are working two or three jobs. They're not seeing no American dream. Uh, and then somebody sort of uh, gets a cushy little CEO job somewhere and all of a sudden the money comes flowing in. So reparations here, meaning that working people starting with African-Americans and starting, of course, uh, including women, uh, including the least of these, the most marginalized people, uh, compensating for what was damaged, what was destroyed, uh, would be a way of building community uh, that moves from the bottom up and doesn't stop there. So so repairing destroyed labor relationships with African-Americans who endured slavery is only the tip of the iceberg, is the beginning. Uh, that then would restore labor relations more broadly. And I think that would get you to an actual American dream instead of an American illusion. Namely, not that a couple of people at the top uh, got there because they worked so incredibly hard, uh, but because everybody who's making an effort, everybody who's sort of really trying to contribute something to society now find some value in that uh, and, and that to me uh that has a lot to do with jesus's vision of the kingdom of god and uh you know the way the disciples lived and the jesus movement functioned and so on all right well we are out of time <laughs> you know what? i'm sitting here thinking man i need to bring you to kansas city and have you sit in on our conversations about how we here locally in kansas city are trying to continue to move forward the civil rights movement right in 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 solidarity with uh you know with my my black friends here in kansas city and black pastor friends and 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 some of my black politician friends you know what i mean and i'm trying to trying to move uh trying to wait for my white friends and you know <laughs> it's i'd be happy to come uh we, we have a program we call solidarity circles where we put churches in touch with projects in the solidarity economy uh that might be a good way uh of, of moving forward very practically so this is not just a yeah. great idea but here's a program of how churches become involved uh and by the way, the solidarity economy thing is not just fixing economic inequality. It's also addressing, say, racial inequality, because the best way I know of fighting racism is by empowering a black community economically, hmm. because that then gives you some political power, that then gives you some religious power, some cultural power that you would not have any other way. So so there's some things, some programs who are running that hmm. might be of interest. And I mean, yeah. at some point, you know, if you give me a reason to ride my motorcycle from Nashville ah. to Kansas City, I'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, I'm serious. I'll, 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 I'm going to talk about this, and like, if there's some practical, we'll, we'll go offline. And uh, I would love to hear more about some of those practical ways that churches can can act locally, because that's always big for me. Is like, okay, we think these big global thoughts, but okay, here I'm sitting here in Kansas City, you know. What, what what can I do to make a difference, you know? And, and, and this is what we've tried to figure out through the program. So um, 
some of my uh, colleagues and some of my staff are really good at community organizing and mm. and really developing programs out of this, uh, which I think ultimately is what has to happen. You know, yeah. uh, those of us who think big thoughts, hopefully we make a difference, but we, we need this thing happening on the ground. Yeah, yeah. All right, man, I could talk hours on this stuff. So uh, <laughs> thank I, you. I really so enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. And uh, I will, I'll follow up with you because seriously, like I'm, I'm literally trying to do stuff on the ground here along these lines and, uh, you know, trying to use whatever influence I have left to, with the breath that I have left on this planet to make some difference for good and beauty and equality and all those kind of things, you know? So, well, thank you so much. Um, Everybody check out Theology and Capital O Scene and uh, also several other books that uh, Jorg Rieger has written. Thank you, Jorg, for joining us at Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for everybody tuning in to this episode and uh, we'll see you next time. Enjoyed it, yeah. Thanks, glad to be with you today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I wanna encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe, be sure and share any of the episodes that you like, and be sure to make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments, and go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.